Hello and welcome to this, the 28th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise, and that's what I've been doing all this week. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And every week we are bringing you this podcast absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never ever charge for these interviews. What we're about is about promoting, supporting and celebrating all that's great about Irish theatre. So while we're not looking for money for you directly for these, we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. And the best way to do that is just to go and pick yourself up some tickets to a show that's coming on uh, over the next while and there's an awful lot of really good work on at the moment so you have plenty to choose from. If, however, you feel that ticket prices may be slightly outside your reach this week or this month, go on over to fundit.ie, one of the crowdsourcing websites over there and uh, check out one of the theatre campaigns that's been run over there. Obviously, we would uh, invite you to go and check out Devious Theatre Company's uh, campaign over there for Night of the Living Dead, their forthcoming production, because um, we think that's going to be an amazing show. Uh, but, of course, there are ways you can support without having to put your hands in your pocket. You can tell people about this podcast. If you spread the word about us, we can spread the word about theatre, and it all goes around in a beautiful circle. Um, you can retweet the link to this on Twitter. You can put a Facebook post up. You can subscribe to our podcast over on iTunes. You can stream it from the fightnight.ie website, and you can also actually access it on radiomade.ie. Please do go back and listen to all the other episodes we've put out, and there's quite a few of them there for you now. Uh, And if at all possible, leave us a review over on iTunes. It really, really helps us out in terms of chart position and helping us spread the word. Of course, if you don't have time to write a review, you can just simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system over there. You can follow us, Rise Productions, on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Rise Ireland. And so it has been a pretty spectacular and exhausting week for me personally and for Rise Productions generally um, because this week saw uh, the first ever leg of the international touring of Fight Night kicking off. And it's gone kind of phenomenally well. It's a kind of a strange experience. It's been amazing. I had kind of about 35 or 36 ridiculously hectic hours between um, finishing rehearsals at the Abbey on Monday evening, flying to Glasgow, getting in, rigging, focusing, um, recording all the lights, teching, dressing, and opening it that night with Mike, and, and then up again at about half three in the morning to get on a bus to get to the train to get to the airport to then fly home to be back in time for a 10 o'clock rehearsals Wednesday morning at the Abbey. So it was kind of a whirlwind for me, but I guess it was also a whirlwind for uh, the wonderful Michael Sheehan, who has stepped into my boxing boots as Dan Coyle Jr. Um, because he was really getting thrown in at the deep end. You know, we'd, we'd done our best to give him a few run-throughs in front of people here in Dublin before we travelled over, but it really was his his first time doing it in front of a, a proper crowd, and, and thankfully the crowds did come out, and it was an exceptional show and an exceptional performance from a, a, a really, really talented actor. Um, and and it's all going ridiculously well. It's kind of, I'm, I'm a little blown away. Today has been strange in that we woke up to the news this morning that um, that the two most important newspapers over there had come in and reviewed the show and had reviewed, uh, reviewed it massively positively, like two rave reviews, four-star reviews. Uh, from the Herald and from the Scotsman, and the Scotsman even singled Mike out as uh, as their performance of the week. So it's just the people over there have really taken the show to their heart. It's wonderful for us to see that um, this show that you know people kind of at one stage felt was quite specific about you know a boxer from West Finglas and whatever else. It's great to see that it does travel outside of Ireland, and uh, and that bodes well for some of the exciting plans we have for later this year, which we're not fully allowed to talk about yet. But uh, needless to say, there's some exciting developments coming down the track. So you know, I just have to say. 
a massive thank you to everyone who helped get the show to this point. The the team behind Show in a Bag to begin with, the you know Fish Amble and and Gavin obviously for writing the show for us. Um, the great people at ITI who have done so much to support us over the last couple of years, uh, and of course Dublin Fringe who gave us the opportunity to put it on in the first place. Yeah, it's been amazing. I you know I have to say a huge thanks to my partner in crime here at Rise, Brian Malarkey, who has uh, done so much in terms of you know drawing up publicity and, and getting the word out on this show and, and helping to get these. Uh, these opportunities, and also the man that we we can't forget, the brilliant Brian Burrows, who uh, who stepped in as director on this show and just brought such clarity to the phys- physical language of it, which is you know the thing that people keep on praising about it. Um, we just put together an amazing team, people like Colin Marr and in, in design, um, Carl Redmond who came in to coach me up for the boxing and stuff. We we put a really great team together for this show, and uh, and I'm just delighted that it's that it's going so well for us. And of course, I also have to say a massive thank you to uh, Culture Ireland, who not only um, supported us in getting the showcase back at the Dublin Theatre Festival October to get these international touring opportunities, but also came on board and supported us for this particular tour over to Glasgow as well I mean the work that's going on there is just so important in helping to spread the word about Irish art and Irish theatre so you know just a a massive and a huge thanks to them so look that brings us to this week's guest and this is an exciting one ladies and gentlemen it's why we're giving this a special extended edition this week because this week we sat down and chatted with the wonderful David Parnell um, who for many people they now know him as kind of you know head of theatre in at the Arts Council but David has also had a, a long and, and very successful career, both uh, as an actor and then later as a writer and as a director. Um, he's a guy who has seen pretty much every side of the business, from you know running his own company at Gunanua, uh, through to being a, you know it's certainly in the early days that the, the hottest actor around town, a real up and comer. Um, and you know, so it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, there's that people have that love hate relationship with the Arts Council when they're backing you, they're the greatest thing in the world. When you're getting funding cuts or you're not getting supported for certain projects, clearly they don't know anything and they've never seen good art so you know people have their own opinions about the Arts Council and, and David gets into that a little bit and I think it's a really interesting insight into a man who is at the coalface every single day in, in what is a ridiculously difficult situation with the funding cuts that the Arts Council has taken over the last number of years um, it's a very very difficult job and, and a bit like you know Trapatoni picking the Irish soccer squad Every, for every you know theatre practitioner out there, there's a different opinion on what should be done, how things should be managed, who should be funded, who shouldn't be funded, who should be cut, what percentage of a cut this company should get versus that. And uh, you know everyone has their opinion, but David Parnell is the guy who's at there, at the coalface, having to actually do it. So uh, it's a really interesting insight. We kind of cover his whole career. Again, I'm rabbiting on. I always try not to at the start, but look, we're going to get straight into this. Here he is, the brilliant David Parnell. <laughs> The wonderful David Parnell. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Thank you, Angus. Thanks for asking me. As you know, we kick off every week the same way with the original question. How, when and why did it first occur to you to set off on a career in the business? Well, being a fan of the podcast and having listened a few times, (laughs) uh, I thought you might ask me this. So I started to rack my brains and um, I I guess it started like a lot of people. It started in primary school. Uh, I went to St. Paul's College in Rohini. Right. And there we had a very enthusiastic speech and drama teacher called Mrs. Quinn. Hello, Rosemary, if you're listening. And uh, she, we did probably at least one, if not two shows every year. Kind of variety, kind of, not plays, but kind of a Christmas kind of concert and then maybe a summer kind of concert. And there might be little dramas within that. Yeah. And I generally tended to get cast as women, it being an (laughs) all-boys school. 
and uh, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was uh, not nothing I thought very seriously about. It was just something to do. It wasn't school. It was a bit of crack. Mm. Uh, but I did. I found I did enjoy it, and I found I seemed to have an aptitude for it for performing. I mean, yeah. it was a bit of a show off anyway, and um, I kind of liked you know being up there performing. So I enjoyed it. And then around the same time, I would say around the age of seven and eight, this is aging me now, but around the age of seven and eight, I, my dad brought me to see two huge 1970s blockbusters, Star Wars and Superman, I think 77, 78. Right. And I just thought, wow, wow. Imagine being an actor in a film like that, you know? Yeah. I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be an actor in movies. Not because I wanted to be an actor, but because I wanted to fly spaceships and, you know, <laughs> save the world. And, and you know, perhaps wear underpants outside my trousers, all that stuff. Um but I have to say very quickly after that, probably that was from the ages of seven, eight, nine, maybe up to 10, around the age of 10, I don't know why or how, but I just got turned on to football. We started playing soccer on the streets. We started playing soccer in school and I just became obsessed with soccer. Right. And any interest that I had had earlier in drama or acting was just gone. And from the age of, I'd say, 10 to 14, 15, it was really all about soccer. It was all oh, about okay. Liverpool football club specifically. Um, I'm very sorry for your troubles. Yeah, well, there you go, you know. And uh, but, but you had to. Um, uh, I mean, I realised very quickly that uh, I wasn't very good at soccer. I love, I loved it, but I wasn't very good. And uh, you know, I played in school, and I played, and then early in secondary school, I started to play rugby as well. And I loved, I loved, loved, and still do love sport. Uh, but I'm just not a particularly athletic person. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that I'm not fit. I do a bit of running. I do a bit of cycling. But I'm not. I don't have that kind of whatever sports people have, hand-eye coordination, that kind of skill level. But I still love to take part. Um, and that was my obsession up to about 13 or 14. And then from 14 on, it's kind of my, my, my life is kind of in these very neat sections. Uh, I had learned piano for a year or two earlier until I persuaded my mother that I just wasn't interested and I wanted to give up. But some schoolmates knew I knew some piano and asked me to join a band. Right. And so I joined their band and we played music for three or four years. In fact, I, I left one band, joined another band. And at one point, uh, at one point, I think I was in about four different bands, you know, the kind of way, will you be in our band? Yeah. And, uh, and I picked up guitar and I picked up bass and I played a bit of drums. And so music was then my obsession. And I would say music is probably still my first love, actually, really? to this day. Yeah. Um, I still play the guitar purely for my own pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I write songs a bit, not as much anymore as I used to. Um, but yeah, there was a, probably a period in my teens where I thought this is actually now what I want to do is um, is play music. And, um, you know, we got to a point where we were we were not bad for 17-year-old 50-year school band kind yeah. of thing. But, um, but then around the same time, around 16 or 17, um, a mate in school told me about Dublin New Theatre. And it was really interesting that 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 kind of those couple of years between seven, eight, nine, and ten when I had enjoyed acting, yeah. just that spark went off again, and I kind of thought, yeah, actually, I wouldn't mind trying that. So I went up to DYT and I did the audition. It was kind of an improvisation, a, a kind of a three-hour morning session of improvisation. That's how you were kind of auditioned, and immediately I thought, this is this is it. This is actually it. Wow. Um, I just and I honestly, I've thought about it since. I've thought about it many times. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why it happened the way it happened, but I just knew instantly that this was something I wanted to explore. So I joined DYT and I went up every Saturday morning for two hours for the workshops and I, I spent two extremely happy years in Dublin New Theatre. It seems to have been so 
influential in the careers of so many people who've gone on to you know yeah. do great things in the business have you any idea what the magical spark up there is is it mm. pixie dust somewhere a little bit i mean in fairness at the time it was it was patty o'dwyer and eilish mullen um who sadly left us i think about 10 years ago now but uh she she and paddy ran it and it was kind of the main thing I think about it was that it wasn't a serious theatre school. It wasn't a kind of a stage school. It wasn't very formal. It was as much about being yourself, meeting people, making friends through drama yeah. as it was about drama itself, okay. you know? And certainly, I mean, I think a lot of guys, a lot of, a lot of people who went to DYT, a lot of them then went on to train formally. Uh, those who were seriously committed to a job in the profession, although not all did. I mean, some people like Anna McLean and Aidan Gillen and um, there's a few others, um, Andrew Connolly, they just went on to have careers yeah. from DYT, straight out, you know, um, Anthony Brophy. So, so, but I think others went on to train and, and the training, you know, in Trinity was more disciplined and more rigorous and more serious. Whereas DYT, it was really about having fun meeting people it was as much about developing socially and about kind of you know from the DIT's point of view it was about drama helping young people to develop and evolve yeah. so I mean I would recommend it for anybody because it's just it was basically the coolest youth club in Dublin that's what it was <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. and the thing was if you weren't interested in acting you could be involved backstage you could be involved in costume lighting sound there were lots of other things to do as well so it was just a really really good happy mix of people but I think it's important to say it wasn't and you, it wasn't fame right okay. they weren't those stage school kind of kids it was kind of it was much more down to earth and much more kind of um, it was a bit grotty to be honest you right. know I mean I think you've been you've been in the I building yeah. There, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know um, I mean Peter did his best to keep the place clean and keep us all in shape um, but at the time you could smoke as well that was the thing you could still smoke uh, in the house back in the in the mid 1980s uh, not that I ever smoked uh, but but there was this, the whiff of ash and cigarette and dirty ashtrays everywhere and that yeah. kind of stuff. But that was kind of part of its appeal, you know. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of rough and ready. It had, a, it, yeah, very much had a youth club kind of feel to it. Um, but nonetheless, everyone was there because they had an interest in drama of some yeah. sort. And that was that was the thing that brought us all together. And so, at what stage then did the decision happen for you that, yes, I am going to try and yeah. do this professionally for a career and as such, I will need to train further? Yeah, well, while, while I was I was in DYT for my last year in school, basically, yeah. uh, which wasn't a very good thing for my academic uh, achievement, I had done okay in my junior cert or intercert, it was called then. I had done okay, and I suppose I was kind of considered... I was considered, you know, by my parents and by my friends in school that I, you know, I would likely do well enough in the leaving cert to go to college. And that was kind of, and all my friends were going to college and that was kind of assumed. Uh, even if it was an arts degree, it was college, you know. And, um, but once I found acting, once I found DYT, I just had no interest in doing anything except working in theatre. Yeah. Mainly as an actor at the time. Although even then, even at that stage in DYT, we did, we did writing and directing workshops with Der- Jerry Stembridge. And already I began to think, oh, that's interesting, you know, the, the writing and directing. So I was already wow. thinking that as well. As but, early as that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I wrote, I wrote a short, I wrote a, out of a workshop with Jerry, I wrote a short scene, which I then developed into a play later on. But that's right. when I began sort of thinking about writing theatre as well as acting. Wow. But mainly it was still acting. But, but um, anyway, I, the Leaving Cert didn't go very well um, because of that. Uh, certainly not well enough to get into college. And my parents were furious. And I said, it's fine, I'm going to be an actor, you know. And uh, so we, we had a bit of a disagreement. And they, um, they said, no, you've got to go back and repeat your Leaving Cert. So I reluctantly went back for a few months. 
But then through DYT, Peter Sheridan rang up DYT. He was looking for young people to be in a production he was mounting at the Abbey of A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan right. Thomas, a stage adaptation of that. And they were looking for young people who could sing. And hence the musical background kind of yes. helps. Because uh, I felt confident that I could sing. So I went down to the audition and I sang and I got the part. Uh, I was one of a group of, there was five of us who were called the Town Hill Gang. And basically we were, we were these bullies who threatened Dylan and his friends and threw styrofoam snowballs at him. Uh, but I got the part. I mean, it was a tiny walk-on part. I sang a carol, I think, and I threw snowballs. But I was 18. I'd never acted professionally. I had been in TYT for two years at that point. Yeah. This was a job in the Abbey. I went home to my parents and said, look, I've got a job in the Abbey. I'm leaving, I'm leaving school, yeah. my repeat leaving cert. And in fairness to my parents, because it ne- they just couldn't believe that I had succeeded in getting a professional job as an actor. And they thought, oh, he is serious about this. Right. And in fairness, he's got himself a job. So let's see how he gets on. So that really, for me, was the, uh, the moment where I thought, actually, maybe I could do this. But at that point, I was, so I was, I was about six months out of school, even though I'd gone back for three months to repeat. I was six months out of school and I thought, okay, I really do want to do this. Um, I should probably learn how to do this properly. And at that stage, through DYT and through the people I'd met, I began to research drama schools and I heard about the Trinity Acting Programme. So the following spring, I auditioned for the Trinity Programme and I got accepted. And that was it. I went to Trinity. And tell me about the course then. This is when it was still in its two-year diploma stage. Exactly. I think we were the third year that were accepted in. Right, Very okay. early in its infancy, yeah. Yeah. And talk to me about your time there then. Yeah. Was it intense? Was it full-on? Was it crazy? Was it yeah. still finding its feet? Uh, not really. I mean, the, 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 the course director at the time was a chap called Michael Joyce, who was Galway-born but had trained and worked in London for a long time and had worked, as far as I know, as an assistant director with Samuel Beckett on a couple of shows and you know, was kind of worked in the Royal Court and a very good pedigree. He was the main teacher. And then a woman called Diana Theodorus was the movement teacher. And they had been with the course since the beginning in 1986, I think. So yeah. I think it was part-time in 86 and then one full-time in 87, if I'm right. And then we went in in 88. Um, and they were both really wonderful teachers. It was intense. I have to say Michael Joyce was tough. He yeah. was tough. Uh, he... he um, he could be, I mean, not not suggesting he was in any way inappropriately uh, tough, but he just, you know, yeah. wanted the best. Yeah. And uh, and he pushed you all the time. He made it very hard. And obviously there was, there was as you know yourself, very strict discipline in terms of being there and warming up, being present and being, being just, you know, partaking in the class. And in fairness, you know, we were, we were, there was 17 of us got accepted out of the couple of hundred that auditioned. So you're lucky to be there. This is very you true. Know? And if you're not going to take that seriously and if you're not going to take that opportunity, then... You know, you're already falling down at the beginning of your professional career yeah. as an actor. You know, so I think, I think in terms of teaching you discipline, in terms of teaching you a professional attitude, absolutely essential. But also in terms of teaching you the techniques, standing, breathing, being present in your body, learning how to analyze text, all that stuff, just fantastic. So I'd have to say it could be very tough. I was washing dishes in Brown Thomas's restaurant at the weekends. Uh, I was, you know, trying to just make a little bit of money. So I was knackered most of the time. Yeah. Um, but I absolutely loved every second of it. Great. Yeah. And then the transition then from Trinity out into the real world. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was it like then going out to go and be a professional actor? Well, if, I can, under your belt? if I can go back a year or two, sure. I forgot to mention that... Uh, to, uh, 
1987, the same year I did my Leaving Cert, uh, I was cast in the National Youth Theatre, The Crucible. I know you had Cathy on yes, this a few weeks ago. And um, so that was, a, that was a seminal moment, I think, for, for most of us in that yeah. production. I mean, obviously, Ben was an up-and-coming director at the time. He just directed um, a couple of shows at the Abbey. He was really breaking through. And, you know, to the extent, really, we were 17, 18, we didn't quite know how lucky we were to be working with Ben Barnes at that time. Um, it was a fantastic production, uh, The Crucible. It was a fantastic cast. Kathy Belton, Anthony Brophy, Catherine Walsh, Noelle Brown, a lot of people who went on. You know, that's insane. I mean, it was really, yeah. I mean, it was really. And I think that's credit to Ben that he spotted people, you know, and um, and that he, you know, he could see these people have potential and they can do it. And, um, yeah, so, but that, that you know, like the National Youth Theatre is done like a professional production where you go in in the morning, you rehearse all day. Whereas in DYT, we were rehearsing at night and weekend and whenever we had spare time. Yeah. This was a proper you know, we weren't being paid, but it was a proper professional kind yeah. of ethos around the thing. So I suppose going into training, and then also having done the kind of extra work in the Abbey as well, I suppose I suppose I felt I had some sense of what it would be like when I left Trinity working professionally again, you know? Yeah. I mean, it took a couple of years to get back to the Abbey, right. but I still had a sense of being a professional actor working, you know, that this was a job. This was a job yeah. that people did, and uh, it wasn't kind of, you know, suddenly going from training to acting in a rehearsal room. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that time then, this is late 80s, early 90s then when you would have finished up? 1990, I graduated. Uh, so the first year uh, was tough enough, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, there were there were bits and pieces. I got a, I got a job with a company called Eva Ildonach, who, yes. who um, have since, I mean, they kind of transmogrified into different things. Um, but they were, at the time they were doing um work with schools and we did a schools production of uh, a version of Dear Mernigus Grania uh, I think there was five or six of us in the cast and it was kind of it was an all hands on deck kind yeah. of thing but it was great fun great learning experience lovely cast and uh, so that was my first kind of paid gig really and then shortly after that I got cast in um, Andrews Lane Theatre which was only about a year or two old at the time right. in a show called A Slice of Saturday Night which was a 60s musical uh, which was done over the Christmas kind of 89, no, 1991. Yeah. And uh, uh, Richard Cooper, uh, Rachel Dowling, um, Donna Dent, a few of us kind of got our start yeah. there. And uh, so it ended up being phenomenal success and we ran for 16 weeks. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, which by Irish standards is a long run. Yeah. Um, uh, but great fun, good learning experience, tough. I mean, I have to say, you know, I was a bit of an asshole because uh, I wanted to play Hamlet and here I was in a cheesy 60s musical, yes. you know. And looking back, I think I probably, uh, I probably didn't, again, didn't appreciate that I was working in a very yeah. successful show, you know. And I think it's the kind of arrogance of youth and the kind of, the kind of sense of, well, this isn't serious art, you yeah. know. But in fact, it was a very entertaining show. It packed, it did great business. People loved it. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so I suppose in that sense, I suppose those two jobs, the Eva and then the Andrews Lane, that was kind of, you know, within within six months of graduating, I had had those two jobs. So so it was okay, but it was still it was still early days and it was still kind of uncertain. And I think there was a gap then of a few months yeah. and then another gap of a few months, you know. Yeah. And I think things didn't really take off until 92. Kalesh Farrell, uh, now of Kilippo Theatre, yes. um, I had worked with Colette. I'm not exactly sure how I met Colette, looking back, because I know we worked together afterwards. But anyway, she rang me, out of the blue, she rang me and said, 
would you help us? We're developing a show and we need some actors to improvise. And it was Martin Murphy who was writing the script. Right. And um, they said, look, we know it's really cheeky, but would you give us two days of your time? Uh, you know, I was like, it's very nice of you to say it's cheeky, but I'm sitting here doing nothing, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I said, of course. So we went down to the old City Arts Centre. Yeah. And we did two days of improvisation. To be honest, I can't even remember what the, the concept for the play was. But Martin Murphy was the writer. Now, I knew Martin as an actor through Rough Magic. I'd seen him acting in Rough Magic shows. And, you know, this is a real actor, you know, and a successful guy. And I was delighted to get a chance to work with him. Um, but nothing came of that. And they said, thanks very much. But then a couple of months later, I got a call from Martin Murphy, who was working on another project, which was a stage adaptation of Gone with the Wind called Frankly, My Dear. Yes. Produced by Richard Cook for his then company, The Rude Mechanicals. And uh, so we did it out in the Lambert Puppet Theatre in Monkstown. And we had Connor Lambert playing Rhett Butler, and we had Neve Linehan playing Scarlett O'Hara, and we had me playing everybody else. What? So <laughs> it was just a fantastic opportunity for an actor because I got to do, I really got to show off, yeah. you know, I got to play lots of different characters and it was just, in fairness to Martin, it was a mad idea, let's do Gone with the Wind with three actors, um, but it worked, it just worked and it yeah. was very funny and it was really interesting because the first couple of weeks, we ran for about six weeks I think out there and there were one or two nights we had to cancel because literally we didn't have enough people. The thing is, it was a lot of audience participation so we needed, right, okay. we needed at least six people just to cast the thing, <laughs> right? So, so we just one one or two nights we just couldn't do. It. We just didn't have enough people to do it. Um, but then word of mouth began to spread, and it took off, and uh, it started to pack. And because Richard Cook was working at the time in the Gay School of Acting as administrator, and Joe Dowling was still the director and yeah. still in situ, Joe Dowling came to see the show, and I think that's just one of those lucky breaks that. I got to do a great audition for Joe Dowling, you know. And then he asked me to come in and audition for a couple of things. And then the following year, he cast me in Da at the Olympia. Right. With um, Maureen Potter as, as Ma, Barnard Hughes, who won the Tony on Broadway as Da, and Donald McCann as the older Charlie. Sweet so, lamb yeah. of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that, you know. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, that was to me... Um, well, that was one of quite a few highlights, but that was one particular highlight, yeah, was to, to work with Joe, whose work I'd seen and, and admired, and to work with the likes of Donald. And um, and actually, interestingly enough, a slightly older than me, but still young, Owen Rowe. Wow, as yeah, well. As Oliver. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, and he, we, we, I bumped into him a few months ago, and he told me he was going to be playing dad, and yeah. what a fantastic dad he was. Yeah, it's very true. Just fantastic. Man, it's such a great play as well, though. Uh, it's a beautiful play. And in fact, I, I, again, it's that funny thing, though, because I was 22, 23 at the time. Uh, I mean, obviously, I was absolutely bricking, you know, playing the Olympia with all these great actors. And, um, you know, I did the best I could do. And I think I, I did OK. I was happy enough. But but looking at the production in the gate recently, I thought, wow, I just had no idea what a good play that was. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But also because now I'm 42, I have kids of my own. And you view it through you, a completely you different see lens. It, you see yeah. it from a different lens. Yeah, yeah you really do. And you just it is it is a beautiful, beautiful play. Yeah. Yeah, really is. 
what was Donal like to work with? I had the great the first gig I ever got was a movie and uh, and I got to shoot a few scenes with Donald McCann. Oh, and that's yeah, like, yeah, as a fifteen yeah, yeah. year old kid was yeah. not a bad way to start in the Absolutely. business. Uh, what was it like? Was yeah. it a, a master class just to be around him? Um, well, a master class in terms of watching him work, but yeah. he's he's he was a he you know, he was a tough customer, you know. And the thing is actually as I got to know him a little bit better you realise that he was just incredibly shy. Yeah. Just an incredibly shy man. And uh and so, you know, if you didn't know him very well, you got the kind of sense of kind of gruff and kind of unfriendly. But actually, you just realized, and funny, it was funny looking back at that, you know, he was, in fact, he turned 50 during that run. So he was 26, 27 years older than me. Yeah. So he's thinking, I have nothing to say to this kid, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, he has nothing to say to me, you know what I mean? Yeah. And at that point, I had done shows with DYT and NYT where everyone's having the crack and everyone's going to drink in after rehearsals and everyone's, you know, everyone's just part of a team. Yeah. Whereas now it's kind of more formal and it's kind of like, you know, you know, there's less of that sense of, of, of the crack. And uh, so I, I, I found that a little bit tough, I have to say, because I didn't feel that there was that kind of sense of ensemble, which I had kind of got used to in Trinity. This was much more, you knew your place and you were part of a company, but you weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah. You weren't all in together to that extent. And, you know, so that was kind of tough. Um, and also, uh, and I, 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 there's no harm in me committing this to tape because everybody's heard this story. He did sometimes talk to you under his breath on stage when he felt the scene wasn't going well. Um, you know, he would just offer instructions like, <laughs> you know, hurry up. Uh, but, and that was a bit disconcerting for a young That's actor. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but having said that, he was very generous. He was very. Um, he was very, you know, he was just amazing to watch on stage. I mean, yeah. he just was. He just was. But I think it's funny. It's like, it's a bit like, um, I think it's a bit like, you know, I talked earlier about my obsession with football. I think there are some actors who just know how to do it. And they can't necessarily explain how they do it. And like, I know you're a sports fanatic as well. You know, you watch great players, whether it's ga or soccer or rugby. And they just have that inner ability to do it. And... You know, literally, if you ask them to sit down and analyze it, they couldn't do it. It's just pure instinct and it's pure natural ability, you know? Yeah. And it's just great to be around. It's great to watch. At you know? that stage in the early 90s, what was the scene like around Dublin and around Ireland? I mean, do you remember it being, uh, I, looking back on it, do you remember it being a, yeah. a great time for Irish theatre? Was were, yeah. were times tougher? How, how do you view that, that early well, no, time? I, well, I had a real sense that we were part of an up-and-coming generation, you know, but then everyone does think that when they're part of a generation. But 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 really there was. I remember around the early 90s particularly, there was, um, um, in the late, late 80s and early 90s, uh, uh, Passion Machine were starting in the SFX and DYT was really DYT was about 10 years old at that point and there were people then graduating from DYT into Passion Machine shows and into other shows in Project Art Centre and interesting there was a pub there was a pub on Hill Street called Tony Burke's right. which actually for a couple of years became the theatre pub so it was like the epicentre of Irish theatre moved kind of up from the plough, yeah. you know, and uh, and you would you'd be you'd be having pints, and you know Jerry Stanbridge and Paul Mercier would be in the pub, you know, and there was a real there was a real sense of buzz about that, and also because of because of National Youth Theatre, I made a lot of friends, some of whom went on to the Gaiety School, some of whom went on Trinity, so you kind of felt connected to a, a community of actors definitely at that time, and I do think there was exciting work happening, and then you know obviously Rough Magic and Fish Amble were starting to get established in the late eighties as well, but but there were also companies like Horizon. And there was Eve Aldonico I mentioned. There was a couple of other companies, some some um, commotion. Yeah. Um, Joe Byrne and Declan uh, Gorman were making interesting work. You know, there was, there was a lot of interesting work happening, I think, at that time. But 
at the same time, there was, I mean, Andrews Lane came around, I think, yeah, around that time, 1989, 1990. So, yeah, I guess, I guess, I mean, the Samuel Beckett Theatre wasn't there at the time. Obviously, the Lear does there now. Yeah. So there were fewer performance spaces, I yeah. think, which meant there was just less physical spaces to make the work. Yeah. But I loved being part of it. I mean, I just adored it. I really did. I mean, it was a very, very happy time. Uh, going from one company to another and making friends and the, yeah. the other thing is you know yourself you know when you you make friends on an acting job they're mates for a long time yeah. you know and that's the great thing about the business yeah. is that you move from one job to another but you, you, you take friendships with you you know so then let's fast forward a little bit and yeah. talk to me about the beginning of branching out both yeah. into directing and into writing when yeah. did that start to happen more formally for you well um, certainly as I mentioned in Trinity I was starting to think about uh, or in DYT I was starting to think about writing and directing and I was, I was kind of doodling if you like writing things and I had ideas to write things And but I was always like uh, you know that old, that old uh, David Mamet joke two actors in a bar uh, one says the other what are you doing I'm writing a play the other says yeah neither am I <laughs> you know I mean God knows we've all we've all thought about it you know as actors yeah. um, but I kind of kept I kept annoying friends saying I really want to write a play and it was Alison McKenna who I was in NYT and Trinity with um, and she and I were good friends and she she had moved to London and she was working in London but she was home doing a show in the Abbey right. and I was doing a show downstairs in the Peacock I was doing Katie Roach with Derville Crotty and she was upstairs doing a show and we were met in the Tide bumped into each other and chatting away and she said how's it going I said grand but I just you know I really want to write a play and she said oh god you've been talking about writing a play for years yeah. she said if you write a play I will produce it because she really wanted to produce Right, okay. So she mentioned two actor friends of ours, Catherine Walsh and Dana Bledsoe, who was an American actress who trained with us in Trinity. Right, okay. she, she stayed on in Ireland for a couple of years and then went back to the States. But she, she and Catherine and Alison had been talking about doing work together. So Alison said, why don't you write a play for Dana and Catherine specifically? And at that point, I didn't really have an idea for a play, but I, I thought I had vague ideas for a play. But I wrote a play, I started to write a play about a Cork woman and an, an American woman who are sharing a flat in Dublin. And it literally started from there and it grew into a full-length play uh, which became called Licking the Marmalade Spoon. Um, so I wrote the first draft and I showed it to Alison and she liked it. And I sh again, I have to jump back a year or two. I did Love Child by Jerry Sembridge right. in Project Art Center in 92. So I had, I had met Fiat McAneil through that and because uh, he was running the project at the time and so after I'd written the first draft I went to Fiek and I said I've written a play is there any chance I can put it on in project and fair play to him he read it and he said yeah uh, and I said not only not only have I written it but I'd like to direct it as well right okay um, and you know I will always be grateful to him for that because um, you know it was a new play it was uh, a bit rough and ready but um we did a couple of workshops, we did a couple of readings and we kind of knocked it into shape. And um, so I suppose that's, that. so yeah, I suppose between Alison sort of calling my bluff and saying, write the thing, and then fake letting me do it. Mm. I thought, oh God, I've got a slotted project now. I better do this. And of course as well, then it was a question of begging, borrowing, stealing and asking friends favours and asking actors to do it for hardly any money. Yeah. The usual kind of stuff when you're starting out. Um, but we did it. We did it, and it went on in '96. So I suppose that gave me the confidence then to think about writing more and, seriously. Yeah, and 
so then the the discipline for you as a writer when you're writing are yeah. you eight o'clock in the morning until six o'clock in the evening <laughs> sitting down is it inspiration striking at four o'clock in the morning what, yeah, what way do you a, go about it it's a bit of both I think the initial the initial process is the ideas are mulling around in your head and you're kind of thinking you know you're thinking um well that's an interesting scenario for a play I mean the, th- the thing about Licking the Marmalade Spoon was it was suggested to me it was Alison said these two actors write for them yeah now there ended up being two other actors two male actors in it as well but that was the starting point literally it was that starting point of well what would a relationship like be be like between uh, between this particular cork woman and this particular American now obviously we fictionalized it and developed it but initially it was about characters based on them so that in a way was kind of the brief if you like the commission but after that then I just had other ideas and so yeah you would start with the ideas and then you would kind of start to sketch them out but then what we started doing very quickly was um, Paul Mead was in that production Licking the Marmite Spoon and I I knew him from he was the year behind me in Trinity and we got on very well and we got on very well during that production so I said to myself I'd love to work with him again so when I had an idea for another play I approached him and said do you want to help me produce this Alison had gone back to London at this stage, so I needed a producer. And Paul uh, said, yes, okay. But that, but this, this time it was different. Lick of the Marvelous Spoon, I wrote a draft from beginning to end. Whereas the next show, which was called Four Stories, I had four characters and I had a vague story in mind. But we actually cast it and we went into a room for a few weeks and we devised it. Okay. So that's how we developed the story. So um, things came up in improvisation. And I learned that technique through doing workshops with Jerry Stenberg. So this didn't seem unusual to me. Um, and in fact you know that's how Jerry had written a lot of his work as well working with the actors and then yeah. developing the ideas but having said that uh, you know people think oh that's not really writing you know you get the actors to do it but in fact you still have to go home and you still have to sit in front of a computer and you still have to kind of knock the thing into some kind of shape it yeah. still has to kind of be dramaturgically sound it still has to move forward you've got to shed stuff that's really good in the rehearsal room really funny and really close to the character but actually isn't yeah. dramatic you know so there's still a lot of that process but yeah it just came down to then sitting I'd say I'd say from memory the writing started around midday and finished around one <laughs> and then we'd start again late in the evening but then as you got as you got into it it got easier and then but then sometimes yeah there would be like five in the morning because you just you start yeah. and things start coming to you and you just keep writing until you just start to fall asleep yeah. and then the next day it's a mess but you've got something yeah yeah and then well, then, um, talk to me a bit about your approach as a director then. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, it seems that in as much kind of big success as the Wall Street as an actor, there was also an awful yeah. lot of success as a director as well and kind of, you know, your time at the Abbey mm. and stuff as well. Yeah. yeah. What is, is your approach to directing similar to your style of acting? Do you come at it from a totally different way? Is it all about telling the same story? But- no, well, again, again, to, to, to harp on about my obsession with football, I think it's a bit like, uh, you know, managers who've played the game. You know, I think there's definitely, I think it helps. I, that's my personal view. I think it helps if you understand the process of acting uh, as a director. Um, I think certainly, and I think I think I would certainly approach it as as, in a sense, you know, I'd approach it from the actor's point of view. And I suppose in that sense, my, my, my personal style of, uh, of directing was never, I was never particularly um, strong on visuals. I mean, I've worked with good designers yeah. who would help with the visuals. And I'd have a sense of how I wanted the thing to look. But really for me, it was about the performances. It was about the acting. It was about the, you know, the, you know, the, the Edward G. Robinson, look the other guy in the eye and tell the truth. You know, it really was about that. And I thought, you know, really, if the, if the set falls down and the lights break, 
it's still about these two people and what they want from each other and um so that really was the the the, the central thing for me um so it definitely helped that i said i suppose i had a sense and also i had a sense of trusting the actors yeah to do it because you know i knew from my own experience that it takes a few goes you know it takes a few weeks rehearsals and it takes learning the lines and really starting to get a sense of where it is and, it, and again like i mentioned earlier about donald it's you know good actors get there by instinct i think and i mean you can you can talk and you can intellectualize and you can rationalize and you can but ultimately i think it's it's called acting you know it's about action it's yeah. about finding the action through the line and it's about uh it's about driving driving the thing forward through that action you know and i think you only learn that by by practicing you know and kind of versus the sometimes individualistic route of an actor through a play and how he approaches a character yeah. or she approaches yeah. a character or whatever was the more general overall wider view that you had from being a playwright and going I have to construct this entire world and mm. understand mm. each character was that broader scope a useful thing to then bring into the directing as well that you had the experience of kind of taking a step back and seeing the overall yeah. picture yeah. as well. Well, I mean, obviously, just as part of our training in Trinity, you know, we, we, we learned how to read plays, you know, and that was kind of, I mean, we were learning how to read the play from an acting point of view, but particularly Michael Joyce, who was our first teacher, was an absolute uh, stickler for stage directions and for reading the text. Not so much stage directions, I mean, he sits, he stands, but the, the you know, the pauses and the beats in the lines and the the sentence structure you know that kind of thing yeah. so i think just just learning that or thinking about that training yourself to do that as an actor uh, i think then helps you in terms of approaching a text as a director as well i mean obviously you've got to read all the lines <laughs> uh, and you've got you know but i think in a sense in a sense that you learn then over that the period of those two years of training and then working on scripts afterwards i suppose you, you pick up a sense of how plays are constructed but i think david mamet who, of whom i'm a big fan you know he said it really that that it, it does come down, I think, in, in text-based theatre, it comes down to the writing, you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, there are other kinds of theatre, and particularly now, there are a lot of other kinds of theatre. Um, but when it comes to text-based theatre, you know, a good play will do the work for you. You know, it really will. Yeah. And, you know, Mamet says something in his book, True or False, you know, basically, all the acting in the world isn't going to save a bad play. <laughs> and if the play is good, you don't need to act at all. You know, yeah. I can think, I think he's being a bit dismissive of acting of what they do. I think there's obviously, an actor brings something to it that is absolutely essential. But, but he's right in the sense that, you know, if the play is well enough written and constructed and the sen that sense of action is there, then half the work is, is done for you, you know? As you look at the three different disciplines, yes. now do you have a favourite? Director, writer, or actor. When when is David Parnell most happy? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think. Well, I think one of the reasons one of the reasons I moved into writing and directing, apart from just having an interest in writing and directing, was was I was I got very busy as an actor, and uh, I'm you know I'm very grateful that yeah. I had the experiences I had because after I did done Da with uh, Joe Dowling, he cast me in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Gate. And then the following year, he cast me in Borsal Boy at the Gaiety. Which I saw. Uh, yes, indeed. I think that's where we first met. Indeed. Yes, yes. And um, say hi to your mom, by the I way. Will, I will and, uh, and, and then meantime, I started to get work at the Abbey as well. Um, I got, um, uh, I mentioned Katie Roach, and then I got um, Observe the Sons of Ulster at the Abbey, and then I got Philadelphia and Com at the Abbey. Um, so I was very, very lucky that I've done a lot of the big Irish players. Right? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. My only regret is that I played Gar. I played Gar Public in school in a school production in sixth year in school, 
and then I was casting Gar as Gar Public again in the Abbey, and uh, I, I just wish I got to play Gar Private. Yeah. Uh, although I have to say that Derek Kelly was a fantastic uh, Gar <laughs> Private. Uh, that was one where I didn't get to play Gar Private, but yeah, I got to play Gar Private. I got to go Gar Public, and I got to play uh, Charlie then in Dad, obviously. And the other, the other big, big feather in my cap was I got to play Biff in Death of a Salesman at the Lyric in Belfast, and um, they were the, they were the three really for me as a young actor coming through. Yeah. When you're reading plays and you're looking at the Irish and the international plays, I thought, yeah, well, I can say, you know, even if I never act again, <laughs> I, I played Biff in Death of a Sense. It's not know? a bad strike record, man. No, it was, it was, it was great. It was great. And the thing is, you know, when you're in it, you kind of you do the job, and you, you know, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it. There's no question about that. But uh, you know, to some extent, I think you know, to some extent, you kind of you're in it, so you're doing it, yeah. so you're not kind of maybe looking at it. But when you look back, you think, yeah, I mean, I was very lucky, very very lucky, and uh, I loved it. Um, but sorry to go back to that. Yeah, so I was very busy working as an actor, and um, then the kind of writing was starting to you know take up my interest. And I don't know, I don't, I honestly don't really know why, but sometime around ninety five. Um, I think I, I more or less didn't stop for about two years and um, I began to sort of sense I began to just have a sense of um, I'm not sure this is really satisfying me as much as I thought it would or yeah. as much as it was and I think it was partly because as an actor you are very much part of a process but the director really is the kind of controlling influence in terms of how the thing looks how the thing feels yeah and the writer, obviously, you know. And um, I suppose I just kind of was interested. And I suppose this goes back to my days playing in bands and playing music and writing my own music that I always still, I still sense that I wanted to create my own stuff, you know. So I think I think that um, as much as I enjoyed the acting and as much as I appreciate the chances I got, I did become more interested in creating my own projects. Yeah. And I suppose that's where the impetus to start Gunanua and start writing and directing came. So, yeah, I think I think... I think the um, in answer in answer to your question, I think um, the writing and directing. Right. I don't think. Well, I have. Yeah, with Paul Mead with Gunanua, we did work on a couple of things where he directed stuff I wrote. So I was kind of the writer in the room, mm. um, and that was great because Paul and I just had a great working relationship, and we trusted each other, and we were in a very close sense. But the other thing I suppose about me as a writer was that I was never that. I never regarded writing as a literary endeavor. Do you know what I mean? Okay. I never, I, I, as, far as, me, as far as I'm concerned, it's a play. It's been written to be performed. So if an actor says to me, that line's not working, or this doesn't make any sense, let's change it. Let's yeah. make it work. You know, I think that's really important. Um, so I don't, I don't have, you know, I have no interest, for example, in writing novels or poetry or anything like that. I only was interested in theatre, only yeah. writing theatre. So I was writing it to be performed. If it didn't feel real or didn't feel right, we would change it, you know. So working with the actors in the rehearsal room was very much part of the the creative process. It seems to me that your relationship with Paul in Gunanua was yeah. an exceptionally um, successful one, that you that the two of you just kind of worked really ridiculously well together, mm -hmm. to the point where, like you say, there was times where you were the writer and he was director, but were there also yeah. times that you were co-writing pieces together and things yeah, like that? Yeah, we did, we did, well we did, you know, we kind of did, it was funny, it was a bit like Lennon and McCartney, I mean, yeah. we, 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 um, we credited both of us for every play even if one did more of the writing than the other, we both credited ourselves co-authors because really it was the two of us working together. Yeah. And it was very much collaborative. So for, for copyright reasons as well as anything else, we said by David Purnell and Paul Mead. But sometimes he would do more of the actual writing and sometimes I would do more of the actual writing. Mm. But we would work very closely together in terms of dramaturging the script, in terms of talking about it, in terms of, in terms of tweaking it. And um, 
But some of the plays, yeah. I mean, our first kind of big success was a play called Scenes from a Water Cooler. And again, we worked with three actors. We devised for a week. We had the characters and the ideas and we worked with three actors for the week. And then Paul and I took the scenes that we developed with the actors and we broke it down into a, into a script. And we broke that script down into, I think, about 18 scenes. And then he took the odd numbers and I took the even numbers. It sounds ridiculous. <laughs> so he wrote scenes one, three, five, seven, yeah. etc. Then gave me the script and I filled in the other scenes. It was a mad notion. I don't know why we thought this would work, but it, I mean, obviously then we had to smooth it out and work together then to put it together, yeah. but it worked. It worked. And uh, because we had worked together developing the story and the characters with the actors, we both knew what the play was about. Yeah. And then it was just a question of putting the dialogue on it. And then he would add lines to my bits and I'd add lines to his bit. And then of course, when it went back into rehearsals, we'd add jokes and you know, sure. but. But fundamentally, that's how the script got written. Now, I have to say, we tried it again and it didn't work. So I think it was just a fluke. Um, but certainly, like, for example, Skin Deep, which we did, um, Paul did pretty much all of the writing on that. And um, and then a play called Trousers, I did pretty much all of the writing. So so it just depended on, it. to an extent, it depended on our own work schedule and availability. Because he, yeah. he, you know, for most of the first four years of Gutenberg, he was running around the country doing a lot of stands at the same time. <laughs> And then I was, you know, I'd get an acting gig or something like that. So it depended on our availability as well. Right. And also then which of us was more interested in a particular play that we wanted to develop. But yeah, I suppose it was a very, very happy time. No doubt about that. And Paul is still one of my best, best mates. And, um, you know, my wife will tell you, I spent more time with him than her at, during that period. Um, and it was, it was very much, it was very much um, because we just, we just very similar taste in theatre, very similar interest, very similar senses of humour. Mm. And we both were just interested in making, making kind of drama about really, I suppose, and this is kind of where Gunanu found its niche to an extent. It was just about blokes. Uh, you know, we were in our 20s, mid 20s, and we were, we played football together. We played out in UCD, we played soccer every, every weekend. And we were really trying to capture that experience of, young men you know in fact I remember our first show Scenes from Water Cooler we wrote a, we wrote a program note in the program and it said a note to the women in the audience thank you very much for coming to this play we hope you find this is a fascinating insight into the male psyche and how men work it was, it was a play about three men in the workplace trying to get one over on each other and then we wrote a note to the men in the audience you should bring your girlfriend to the theatre more often. It makes you look sensitive. <laughs> this is why we work in theatre. Our real interests are football and beer. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were deliberately playing on that. Yeah. We were deliberately playing on the fact that we're really soccer, beer-loving lads and we're not really arty. And that was kind of the image we were trying to portray. But obviously we took the, we took the art very seriously. Have you ever explained the name? Where, where it came from? Oh, well, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what happened was the, the company I set up with Alison uh, in, when we did Lick of the Marvelous Spoon, we set up a company and we called it Wish, uh, which you're a bit of a Gaelgore, aren't you? Wish. Yes. I think it means folly or Wish in a Bui. Possibly. I'm not sure. Like a, a folly or a kind of a mad idea, something yeah. like that. I think so. I'm afraid my Irish isn't very good, but, but Alison suggested this name and I liked it. And she, because she, she just wanted an Irish name. So we're an Irish company, it's an Irish name. So, so um, so then when we came, because Alison had moved to London and um, she was doing other things, Paul and I set up, we wanted to set up a new company, but we just, we just kind of out of, out of kind of, as a homage to Bwish, we thought we'll set up another, we'll have another Irish name. Yeah. And, uh, but we wanted something that people who aren't very friendly with Irish would just get. <laughs> and just Gunanua sounded quirky and funny. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But also, I mean, uh, 
it means new dress. So it's kind of it's kind of ironic, I suppose. It's kind of the idea was that it's a kind of a funny sounding name, but it means dressing up. But really, yeah, it did come back to your basic kind of primary school Talguna Nua Er Una. I mean, we yes. all remember that. And it just, yeah, it just kind of tripped off the tongue. But a bit like that, we didn't know Gunanua would then run for yeah. 10 years. So we were kind of stuck with it. <laughs> so as we move on then, talk to, yeah. me, talk to me then a bit about the transition from Gunanua to your work at the Arts Council then. Yeah. What, what made that uh, a move that made sense for mm-hmm. you? What, mm-hmm. Where did it all come from? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, Gunanua was doing, was doing well in the sense, you know, we were very proud of the work, but it wasn't paying a lot of money, I have to say. I mean, we were doing okay. But meantime, I had met my wife and fallen in love, and I had two daughters, and I had a mortgage. And between Gunanua and then a day in a film here, or uh, a play there, uh, I was doing okay, but it was a bit of a struggle, I have to yeah. be honest with this. And I think this is something that, you know, we all face, you know. And in fact, the, the Arts Council itself published a, a document, I think, in 95, or 2005 about the living and working conditions of theatre artists, which made for pretty sobering reading, you know. And we all know this. It's yeah. very hard to make a living in this business if you're not doing other things. And um, if you haven't got a regular telly gig or radio work or voiceover work, and even then it's a struggle. And um, so I was, you know, perfectly honest about it, I was getting worried, you know. And I am a bit of a worrier by nature. Um, uh, I try not to show it, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, and, and I was getting a bit worried, particularly because the kids were now getting older and they were going to go into school and... Um, I just started to get nervous and I started thinking well what if this goes pear-shaped and then around 2007 uh, you know I can't say I'm a I'm a avid student of economics but I was reading in the paper yeah Lehman Brothers and subprime mortgage in America and I thought this doesn't look good to me and the signals weren't good and then I saw the job in the Arts Council advertised and like a lot of people I have opinions uh, which I'm willing to share with people in the pub about how the Arts Council could do its job better. And um, and I suppose well, we've been doing good enough for 10 years at that point. And so it was a combination of those things, a combination about being a little bit nervous about actually paying bills. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, as I said earlier, the acting thing just didn't fulfill me the way it used to. So I thought, I don't want to rely on that. Um, and, and now this opportunity came along. So I thought, well, look, I'll just apply for the job in the Arts Council, I'll see what they say, and uh, I'll worry about it after that. And so I went to interview for the job in the Arts Council, and I mean, I, you know, I had no experience of interviewing for a job like this, yeah. you know, I had auditioned for acting jobs, and yeah. that was about it. Uh, I mean, uh, apart from washing those dishes back in Brown Thomas, <laughs> I had very little experience of working outside theatre, you know, and I'm very lucky to be able to say that, yeah. you know. but. But I went in and I said, look, you know, these are my theories. These are my thoughts. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of my theories and thoughts have now become kind of published. So they're, they're in the public domain. Yeah. But, you know, about, about trying to create a more sustainable way of supporting artists to make work. And, you know, they, they liked what I had to say and they called me back for a second interview and they offered me the job, you know. So I sat down with my wife and I said, look, I've been offered this job, you know, and it's a, it's a five-year contract. Um, it's, um, it's a steady income you know, and it's a challenge and it's an opportunity to make a difference. You Absolutely. Know? Well, an opportunity to have uh, a huge influence uh, yeah, in, in the yeah. theatrical and I think that's, country. that's really, that, I think that fundamentally was thought that as a challenge for myself in terms of can I get in there and can I start to kind of talk to people and, you know, the kind of the slow march through the institution, you know, where you try and make the change. And um, 
So we talked about it a lot, and you know, I knew it would be tough because, well, first of all, I had to tell Paul that I was going to leave Gunanua, and that was tough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he was amazing about it. He totally understood, yeah. um, both from a personal family point of view, but also from wanting a new challenge point yeah. of view, and he was fantastic about that. And um, and obviously, my wife was anxious. Uh, so between those things, um, but I think mainly it was about taking on that challenge and and sort of I suppose because you know we all we all like to think we know things and we all have opinions about things and I thought well I'm going to go in there and I'm going to I'm going to try and make a difference. You well, know? it is that thing. I mean, there's only so long you can, like you say, spend bitching about it in the pub. Yeah. If you get the chance to go and actually yeah. go and change yeah. things, then yeah. that's something you ought to go and change. So that was really it. So I decided to go for it, and um, I have to say, I mean, obviously then things went a lot worse than we thought they would go. And yeah. I mean, the, the obviously the economy has just nosedived since 2008. So it has been a lot tougher uh, for everybody uh, on both sides uh, because of that, because we were managing a catastrophic reduction in our resources. Yeah. I mean, we lost 30%, you know. I mean, my, my theatre budget when I joined was 20 million and now it's 13 million. Right. And that's what I'm having to deal with every yeah. day. And that's really, really, really tough, you know. Uh, but it's a lot tougher for the people out there whose funding is being cut and you know so you're very conscious of that um, but um, but I have to say as well I mean on a day to day level I really enjoy the work it's very it's very stimulating it's busy it's challenging the people I work with are very nice I think that's one thing that maybe people who don't work in the Arts Council or haven't worked in the Arts Council perhaps don't quite appreciate is that is the commitment of people in here to the arts and to the work and um, it's not just me saying that because sometimes we'd have outside people will come in yeah. to do a training day or to consult on something and they will all remark on the level of commitment right. uh, to the arts in here, you know. What have been your proudest moments from your time here? What, what do you think, kind of, like you say, at the start, you had some yeah. ideas of what you'd like to do. Yeah. What of those do you feel have, have, have worked out really well for you? And then, and yeah. then what have been the big challenges? I mean, obviously yeah. there's the financial thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, what have been, yeah so, yeah, so successes and challenges. Well, I think the success, the success, the thing I'm, I'm most pleased with that we've got through over the line is the new schemes, the Theatre Artist Residency Scheme and the Theatre Development and the Theatre Resource Sharing Schemes. They are really important initiatives, I think, in terms of, in terms of signaling a different way to support artists to make work. Um, and I think that, that that is kind of the, because what we're trying to do and what we've been trying to do is to try and is to try and suggest to people who want to make work that you don't necessarily have to set up a company with a board of directors and an office administration. Of course, we understand some people still want to do that. And of course, we understand the people who are doing that are reluctant to stop doing that. That's natural because it is, as an artist, it's a safe and secure environment around which you can then progress. But we have to face the reality, uh, I'm starting to sound a bit party political now, but I think we do have to face the reality that it's not a sustainable model. Because you obviously you can't give everyone who wants a company a company. Yeah. So you have to have a different mechanism to support artists as well. And that's the beginning of that process of the different mechanism. But unfortunately, the problem is that the economic downturn has been so severe that really managing that, managing the, 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 the redu reduction in resources has taken precedent. Because in an ideal world, if the money hadn't decreased at all, we'd be moving much more steadily and slowly towards this kind of more balanced and integrated model. Sure. So that's been the challenge, uh, really. That has been the absolute challenge in terms of um, trying to get that balance right. But it's just, you know, it's quite simply not possible because if you lose seven million over four years, yeah. there's less money. There's less money to make work. So if you cut the company, 
the company is going to employ less actors or do less shows. And if you cut the project funding, then the young artists are going to get less opportunities to make the work. Yeah. Either way, people are going to lose out. Yeah. And that's it's, the way it is. It seems like it's a really difficult balancing act because yeah. you have cheeky young upstarts like me and Rise yes. Productions trying yes. to come along we're trying to emerge and break in yeah. you then have the next tier up of people of the Guna Nuas of yes, the world yeah, 10 yeah, or 15 years behind them yeah. and then up to the heavy yeah. hitters um, yeah. and whilst you know it's it's just so difficult to juggle all those yeah. balls because we yeah. know that you know with a proven track record of excellence in the likes of you know the big companies that we can all yeah. list off yeah. Yeah. that they do need to be nurtured and supported yeah. and whatever yeah, yeah, else yeah. Um, but then just juggling all those balls yeah. must be such a difficult task well, to, I think to achieve what, the balance I think what people tend to forget is that the big co- the so-called big companies um, yeah I mean there is an argument and this is an important thing to say every argument you've heard in the pub or in the rehearsal room any bitchy remarks you've heard about the Arts Council we have those arguments in here yeah. we understand the, the challenges right yeah. and one theory is well those big companies have plenty of money surely they can afford a bigger cut but what you have to remember is that if you cut a bigger company, the first thing they're going to do is reduce the number of actors they employ. Right. And they're going to reduce the length of the run. And they're not going to tour when they could have toured. So it has a knock-on effect for the freelancers out there. Yeah. And these are the top companies and they pay, I mean, as we all know, theatre acting is not a well-paid job. But if you're going to cut the top companies, then the, 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 the first thing that's going to go is the freelance jobs. So less actors will work as a result of that. And I think that's something that, you know, with my acting background, I think that's something I'm very conscious of, that we need to preserve the opportunities for actors to get decent gigs. And so, and I think that's maybe where, where you know, particularly, particularly, you know, directors and writers who want to start their own companies who maybe haven't had that direct experience of being an actor, being a freelance jobbing actor, sometimes don't think of that. They just think, well, they have loads of money. Surely we could get some of that money. Yeah. But it's the actors who lose the work. You know, right. it's the freelance actors, and uh, and I suppose that that is that is for me an important uh, part of the equation. You know, and also the, the freelance, the techies, the technicians, and the and the uh, stage managers, and um, and uh, oh, that this reminds me, uh, Tara Furlong on her podcast said no one ever mentioned stage managers. Right. So <laughs> I want to thank Tara Furlong in particular, uh, but also every stage manager I've ever worked with. And I have to say that is one thing that I moving from acting to directing. That's one thing I really noticed that yeah. that. Um, that I really didn't appreciate what stage managers do when you're an actor, you know? You kind of go, why isn't my prop there? Uh, You know, or can that chair be moved? And you think, my God, I was such a pain in the arse. They are amazing and they keep the thing going and they keep the thing ticking over. And they're also, I don't think I've ever met a stage manager who wasn't just an incredibly lovely person. So anyway, that's my little stage manager. But stage managers need to work, technicians need to work, and actors need to work, you know? And so if you cut, and also playwrights, you know, if you cut the big companies, they can't take risks on new plays. So that's the dilemma, is getting the balance between the established companies that have the potential then to develop artists, and then the new companies coming through who have the potential to make the work. And let me say, of course there are no right answers. Yes. Of course there are no right, there are different ways you could do that. Um, all I can say is that we are doing the best we can. Yeah. And yeah. so looking forward, the next, um, as you see it going forward, is yes. this, you said it was a five-year contract from 2007, so are we... Uh, 2008 I joined, so my sure. contract is due to finish in 2013. Now that's, that's um, you know, whether it's extended or not is up for grabs. I mean, obviously times being as they are, public service, recruitment embargoes, all that kind of stuff, I don't know whether or not, I mean, I genuinely don't know at this point... Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, in my own head, when I was offered the five years, I thought, great, five years. I will go in there. I'll do what I can. I'll learn what I can. I'll try and make a difference. And then I'll move on. And the intention really was to move back out into the sector yeah. um, at that time. But of course, now it's the five years, the end of the five years. The kids are still quite young. Yeah. And, um, but also, I think, I think I'm not sure that five years is enough to, to really kind of make the difference. Yeah. So honestly, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I do like the work here day to day. I like the people. Um, I like the, I have to say, I like the security. That's important. Um, but I also like the sense that I am, you know, sometimes it's tough, but I am trying, really trying to make a difference. And um, so I'm enjoying that challenge. Um, so if I'm offered the opportunity to stay on, then I will think about that. But having said that, you know, never say never. I yeah. mean, um, you know, I do miss being in the rehearsal room. I do miss the camaraderie and the crack of working with artists. I do miss the creative side of things, yeah. you know. And I suppose, so, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. I think about it both ways. You know, some, some days you have great days here and you think this is the best job yeah. in the world. And some days you have terrible days and think, oh, God, I wish I was out there again. So the short answer is I don't know yet. Yeah. If you had a magic wand or a yes. blank check in yeah. the morning, what is what is the one silver bullet fix or improvement for Irish theatre what would be the best thing you could do wow that's a big question <laughs> well I mean the silver bullet is more money there's no question about that and I think it's important to remember that when the when the Arts Council in 2005 they did a massive consultation process I remember with Gunanua we went, we went in as one of many many artists who went in to consult and um, they drew up a plan called Partnership for the Arts which they costed at 100 million and the government of the day in fairness, it was 2005. Uh, I think they published in 2006. The government of the day said, yeah, that sounds reasonable to us. So between 2006 and 2008, when the crash happened, the Arts Council was heading towards 100 million. Yeah. And I think that would have made a big difference. And the idea was that, that would they would be able to do kind of all the things that they wanted to do. The other important thing to say is, you know, we, you, know you and I are of the theatre and, um, you know, this... this, this podcast is probably listened to mainly by theatre people sure but it is the arts council and yep. there are 13 art forms and there are art practice there's young people and children there's arts participation there's arts and health the arts council covers a lot of stuff it covers local authority venues it covers little writing festivals in west cork you know it covers an awful lot of work and so the diminished resources are not just impacting on theatre they're impacting on the arts generally so to go from 100 million to the 60 odd million we're on now is really 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 tough so i think i think as crude as it sounds the silver bullet is more money however i would say as well that we need to be realistic and i think we need to be and i think we are i think in fairness i think i think the community has responded really well to this about sharing resources about helping each other out about co-producing about venues and producers working together about i mean your own uh, show fight night was a collaboration between yourself fish amble iti, ITI fringe. and fringe you yeah. know it's brilliant and those kind of imaginative ideas are coming through and it's absolutely brilliant and i was delighted for example to see that Anne clark was nominated did she win she was nominated i think she did win yes. the art theater award for i think what they said was for imaginative co-productions yeah. because she created that project uh, Mr. Man with Galway Arts Festival and that's exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to encourage is venues networks of venues and festivals helping artists to make work yeah. and you know Dublin Fringe are really doing it now Cork Midsummer are really doing it Dublin Theatre Festival through its reviewed programme yeah. there's lots of those initiatives happening and I think that's apart from more money that's the way we have to go I think this idea of, of artists and companies working kind of silos 
my feeling is that those days are over yeah. and I, I think it would be a shame to go back to that I think we need to have more of a sense of of the companies that are, that are there helping the young artists coming through so that we just don't have the kind of constant constant growth in the number of companies because that's not a sustainable model yeah well, David, thank you so much for having a chat with us. That's been absolutely brilliant. I have to turn You're off welcome. the tape now so I can pitch my one-man Hamlet to you, but I think I think it's going to be a lovely <laughs> You've project. Got no I, think, I think we can reach a wide audience. I think that's going to be great. <laughs> David, thanks so much for that. Much appreciated. Cheers, Angus. Pleasure. So there you have it, the great David Parnell. A really interesting interview and great to get that insight from him. A guy who has just covered so much uh, in, in his career. It's really quite remarkable. And I think, uh, you know, an interesting point of discussion on, on all the things that are going on at the Arts Council. Like I said, everybody has their own opinion on how things can be done. But uh, but David's the guy in there actually doing it, having to make those difficult decisions. So I think uh, hopefully that sparks off a bit of debate and a bit of discussion around the industry and, you know, gives an insight to people who maybe aren't involved in the industry as to, you know, just exactly the challenges that are that are out there for people going on at the moment uh, a lovely guy to sit down with I, I really enjoyed the chat so look that brings us to our usually weekly roundup of what is going on around the country uh, at the moment Greener is at the Gaiety um, with the brilliant Declan Conlon and Lorcan Cranage from the house that I'm working on at the Abbey at the moment um, at Project we have the Falling Song from the brilliant Junk Ensemble um, and also Pigeon is about to kick off there from Carpet Theatre so two very exciting and physical shows there to be looking at uh, Love All is at the Civic in Tallinn now and of course is touring extensively around the country at the viking theater at the sheds we have ergophobia um, the gate has my cousin Rachel with Bosco Hogan who I'm also working with at the moment on the house uh, and I believe that might be completely sold out but worth uh, worth checking that out there or even see if you can get your hands on some returns um, it's been going exceptionally well for them the new theatre has love in the title by the great Hugh Leonard um, the International Dublin Gay Theatre Festival is ongoing this week you can get all the information on all the many many shows as part of that at gaytheatre.ie um, Smock Alley has She Stoops to Conquer at Bewley's Cafe Theatre there is a Galway Girl with Claire Barrett and Joe Hanley which has been getting amazing reviews over the last little while um, and also the Dublin Dance Festival is going on um, and a couple of shows there that really jump out are well the Blue Boy by Broken Talkers which has been so successful for them over the last little while and such an important piece of work um, and also the Burning House which looks like just uh, a really really interesting and exciting international collaboration um, I think that's definitely going to be one to check out all the information on the Dublin Dance Festival is at dublindancefestival.ie so look that's us that is episode 28 in the books it has been a hectic week I'm going to try and sleep up for the next couple of days while keeping rehearsals going on here and try and get back to feeling vaguely human I've been operating on very little sleep for the last little while but we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Oak McAnally I'm Angus Oak McAnally we'll see you next week 